This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The firing of a part-time professor at the Community College of Aurora has led to a debate over academic standards at the school, which serves about 10,000 students. Adjunct philosophy professor Nathaniel Bork was let go this fall. He says it was because he criticized the school's new curriculum. This week, the American Association of University Professors will be on campus to investigate. We're going to hear shortly from the school's vice president for academic affairs. But first, Nathaniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So the school calls its new academic approach the Gateway to Success Initiative. It applies to several introductory classes, including one you taught, Intro to Philosophy. And it's been implemented in classes with high enrollment rates, but also high failure rates presumably with the idea of making the class work better for students. But can you give us an example of one or two of the changes that concerned you as a professor? Okay, so at the beginning of the semester, um, I was told by the administration, in the new way we're going to teach the course, I was to reduce course content by at least 20%. I was to set aside at least five classes or two and a half weeks um, to do remedial English, do hand-over-hand writing. I was told I wasn't allowed to sign more than one single six- to eight-page paper or two- to three-, four-page papers. They told me they wanted a reduction of 30% in white male philosophers to teach in the class. Um, and then just across the board, they said I couldn't make up the writing assignment with other smaller papers. So across the board, they wanted to make the class very, very, very easy to pass, and I had some concerns. One person quit on the spot when they announced the changes. One person's leaving after the semester, and I stayed around to write a report. I'm, I was willing to try it out their way, but the report got me fired. The report, that is, yeah. uh, just say just a bit more about that. So I, was gonna, I wrote a report to our accrediting agency called the Higher Learning Commission. It also went to AUP saying, hey, I'm concerned about this, right? I'm concerned about my academic freedom. I'm concerned about this lowering of rigor. I think this is going to hurt students long term. More students will pass, but with less education. And then when they go into the real world, you know, that deficiency will show up and hurt people. Okay. The AUP, again, the American Association of University Professors, which will be on campus this week to investigate. So you acknowledge that this would result in more students passing the class? Yeah. I mean, in the same way, if you made a marathon one mile instead of 26, more people would be able to run a marathon. Uh, The university would say here, the, the, the community college would say here, that this was about providing the support that students need to succeed. And that... A huge part of philosophy, for instance, is being able to persuade and to have a thesis and see that through. Why wouldn't dedicating class time to that be beneficial? Because the class time came came at the expense of content and the expense of doing other things. Traditionally, right, I mean, we go through the paper. I I worked with them. You know, we email back and forth. There was a process. And there could be two other ways to support people. I'm not against support. Mm -hmm. Supporting students to succeed is great. I'm against the lowering of rigor. That's what I think is not okay. And then the, the, the loss of ability for me to decide for my own students what the best class was. Those so, are my concerns. Did I hear you say that it was both fewer papers and shorter papers Correct. that you were being asked to assign? Traditionally, I had assigned two eight-page papers, and then they told me I could assign one six- to eight-page paper or two three- to four-page papers. Mm-hmm. And why does that matter in a philosophy class? Because, I mean, philosophy, it's about making arguments. And to make an actual argument, it takes time. It takes space. You know, it actually, you know, it's a difficult thing to do. And, it's, and to reduce that and make it, oh, three or four pages, well, then you're losing a lot of the uh, subject matter. And you're also losing the ability to teach students how to actually think on a complete thought that lasts eight pages. That's still intelligent and gets the point across. Did you think that your students were not doing well before the changes? Did you see the, the failures? Um, it kind of depends on, I mean, the thing about CCA is it's a very, very diverse community. So some students were coming in fully prepared. Mm-hmm. Some students were coming in not literate at the college level at all. 
And those, um, some of them would only show up for like a class here and there. A lot of different things going on for a lot of different reasons put a lot of different students in different situations. And that's why I think there was a big failure rate. Not because the class was necessarily too hard. It's because, you know, there's just so much going on, you know, in so many different communities. But the students who showed up to my class worked hard, stayed after class. I worked with them hand in hand. I put in a lot of hours for free at CCA helping students succeed. The ones who didn't were the ones who stopped showing up. And so do you think there's a way to increase a success rate? Oh, absolutely. Without, um, for lack of a better term, dumbing down the curriculum? Absolutely. I mean, right, tutors, support systems, getting uh, better advising. There's a thousand things you can do that don't involve lowering quality. And instead of doing those things, this is the easy solution. This is the, you know, what, we'll just make the class easier so more people pass. And that's not okay to me. Why was it necessarily easier? I mean, just because you're writing shorter papers, one could say that's actually more difficult to crystallize a point. Well, I mean, is it easier or more difficult to write a 16 pages or six pages? I'm not, I'm not sure, actually. Really? I would say it's harder to write 16 pages. I would say it's harder to do, you know, 100% of the content instead of 80% or less of the content. I mean, they're asking across the board to make things easier. Do you think that this, this speaks to something larger in higher education? I do. I believe, that, I mean, the biggest problem is that a, a lot of students were coming up from uh, Aurora Public Schools and they're not prepared for the college level learning. So that's a reality you acknowledge. Abs- oh, absolutely. That institutions 100%. of higher education have to deal with. Yeah. Um, I, I teach at Arapahoe Community College in Littleton and I, teach at the, I taught at the Community College of Aurora in uh, Aurora. And the college, kids coming into ACC are better prepared. They can read and write at the college level. They've had better education. They've been, come from more expensive schools. And that shows up in their work and their ability. You can get the CCA kids to be at that level, but it's going to take support, not lowering the bar. Why is this a question of academic freedom? That's in part what the American Association of University Professors is investigating, is it not? Because I was told, you know, here's what your syllabus will be. Here's the assignments you're allowed to assign. Here's what you have to do. Here's how much each thing will count for. Traditionally, in a college classroom, as a professor, they say, hey, you know what? Here's the benchmarks you have to meet. We trust you to be professional. Meet them the way you want to. That's academic freedom. Here they're saying, we don't trust you with any of that. Here's all the assignments. Here's how you're going to teach. Here's the uh, things you're going to set aside. I had to submit my uh, syllabus four times for uh, approval before it was finally gone, uh, finally went through. That is unusual? Yes. That's never happened before. That's only because of these gatekeeper programs that were introduced this year. So you were fired shortly after you showed the school a letter you'd written to this Higher Learning Commission, which again accredits the Community College of Aurora. Correct. And it outlined the concerns that you have talked with us about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think this is why you were let go. The school says it's not. What did the school tell you about your dismissal? So here's how that went. So on Thursday, I sent the letter to the vice president and president saying, hey, here's my concerns. Please make sure my facts are correct. And if you'd like to offer your own interpretation of my uh, interpretation, that's fine. I'd like to submit that all together. Friday, after six years, I get my one and only ever bad observation. I had six years, stellar reviews, stellar observations. I had done everything at that college. Friday, they come in, they give me a bad observation. I'm fired on the next Tuesday. I mean, you know, who are you going to believe? You or your lying eyes? Well, Nathaniel, thank you so much for being with us. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. Nathaniel Bork, he was an adjunct professor at the Community College of Aurora, and he was fired this fall, he says, because he complained about changes in curriculum. We're going to be back in a moment with the school's view of this. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about academic standards, specifically at the Community College of Aurora, which serves around 10,000 students. We just heard from Nathaniel Bork, an adjunct philosophy professor at the school. He believes he was fired for complaining about a new initiative at the school that he says makes classes too easy 
We're going to hear now from Janet Brandaw. She's vice president for academic affairs at CCA. And Janet, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I understand you can't speak directly about the Bork case, but explain why the college chose to change the curriculum for what it calls these gateway classes. So these are classes that see a lot of enrollments, Mm -hmm. but also a lot of failure. Yes. Yes. So about two years ago, uh, faculty looked at why their classes were not, students in their classes were not succeeding. And through a series of, of really intense investigation, faculty said, well, what's going on? What can we do better? And so they, the faculty, it was faculty driven, and we had full-time faculty and part-time faculty working together to see what would make these classes better. So they did a lot of work in research. Uh, what's the current research out there for um, brain theory, for learning theory, for theory around students that aren't succeeding? And out of that, they developed some interventions that mimicked what the research is saying can help. Like what? Um, so, for example, scaffolding um, their assignments. And so rather scaffolding than... Scaffolding. So yeah. this, is, this is a term of art. Yeah. And yeah. explain it for okay. us. It's, it's a way, I suppose, of providing support, especially with writing mm-hmm. along the way, mm-hmm. yes. in the way that you would scaffold around yeah. a building. So one of the competencies that has to happen, say, in philosophy, is we have to teach students how to analyze, how to critique, how to, how to talk to um, the subject. And and so scaffolding says we're going to do it in parts and pieces. So you'll do this piece and we'll give you feedback and your peers will give you feedback. Are you understanding this? Then we'll add the next piece. And so it's a way to build on it. And the idea here is to not leave a student hanging and it, and, and then finding him or herself weeks later at sea. Exactly. And uh-huh. it's to give them constant feedback along the way. On the other hand, what we heard okay. from uh, Mr. Bork mm-hmm. is that in a philosophy class, this resulted in, in all kinds of things that don't quite work for him. Mm-hmm. So uh, cutting the number of papers all, uh, overall, mm-hmm. the length of those mm-hmm. papers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says it's really important to be able to have space to make arguments mm-hmm. um, and to simply reduce the class time spent on philosophy mm-hmm. and increase mm-hmm. the focus on Really basic writing skills. How do you respond? So again, what we ask, what was asked, uh, and again, this was a co-developed uh, program by faculty. It wasn't administration t- asking faculty to do this. This is faculty deciding. And what they decided is that really you can develop an argument within a six to eight page paper. And then the next step, you can help them develop their thesis and their theory. And so basically, and if you're giving them feedback, they'll understand how to do that. And so faculty are finding it very valuable for students and students are finding it valuable. So Not all necessarily. We reached out to some teachers who mm-hmm. told us Nathaniel Bork was mm-hmm. an excellent educator. We looked at his reviews by students, which are by and large very positive. And other instructors echoed Bork's concerns about the new curriculum. Bill Hansberger, who also taught Intro to Philosophy, resigned out of frustration. He says he was told to cut six lectures from his class to focus on these more basic skills. And he said the papers required of students simply were too short in length to be able to convey anything meaningful. Simply put, they, they dumbed it down. They took it down to the level of, I don't even call it high school, maybe freshman level high school. How do you respond? So, you know, I think it's it's if you look at learning theory, mm-hmm. if you look at what students need to succeed, Sometimes that whole approach of just simply lecturing to students is really 
um, I want to say old school. And if you look at what new th- what theory is being said right now about how students learn, um, it's not just lecturing to students. It's not being that sage on the stage that can give students just lots of information. So are you but basically saying to that professor, you're being crusty? No, I'm not saying that at all. Okay. But I'm saying that everybody sometimes has a th- their own approach to how they think they need to teach. And when faculty looked at what they thought they needed to do to help students succeed, that that whole way of teaching was not what needed what they felt needed to be done. Do you acknowledge, as Mr. Bork did before the break, that some students arrive at Community College of Aurora with a deficit and that teachers, professors are having to not just teach, say, philosophy, but to make up the deficit in writing skills, for instance. So, you know, there's there's two models of thinking. One is the deficit model that students come in with a deficit. Uh-huh. We choose to say every student is able to learn regardless of where they are, but we have to provide them the structure that they need to help learn that. And so we choose not to look at it, at it as a deficit model, but as a way to what a faculty need to do to help students get to that point. Well, let me, let me ask you something uh, a little clearer. Do students arrive at your college knowing how to write? So um, let me take philosophy, for example. Okay. The example, one of the competencies in philosophy is that they have to learn how to write a paper that analyzes and looks at these theories in a, in a much more analytical way. Do they come in having all of those skills? No. That's why that competency is in that class. And so if you are teaching philosophy mm-hmm. at Community College of Aurora, you need to be prepared mm-hmm. to have that aspect of your job is what you're sure. saying. Well, that's a competency in the class. Uh-huh. That's one of the basic competencies that they have to teach. And so, yeah, you have to you have to assume, and that's why five classes were asked to be de- devoted to the work with writing the paper, having peer-to-peer evaluations, and then getting feedback. So the peer-to-peer evaluations were also a concern to some educators. Mm-hmm. Why are peers evaluating peers as opposed to professors evaluating students? They're not evaluating. They're discussing. And so another a goal of that class, if you look at a competency, it's to be able to discuss. And so if I've written a paper with a, th- with a theory in mind and I'm trying to explain it, if I can't explain it to you and you're my peer, then I'm having to learn how to do that in a way that is getting that done. Janet, does this speak to something larger in higher ed right now? Well, again, if you look at the research right now, mm-hmm. and the research will say the way that we've been teaching does not does not meet the needs of where our students are at right now. And we have a really an ethical, I think, responsibility to help our students learn. And so But what about rigor? So what about something just feeling darn hard? So I guess I don't understand why why these can't be rigorous. I'm I'm not I'm not sure why that is an issue because I can teach something. In fact, you have an opportunity to to make it even more rigorous if you're doing it in a way that really is meeting uh, the needs of the competencies where the students are at. So if you talk to any of the instructors that are teaching right now, they'll say, we've not dumbed down anything. If anything, we think they're more rigorous. And so that's where we feel that we're meeting the needs of what our students have to get out of these classes. 
Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That is Janet Brandau. She's Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Community College of Aurora. And earlier we heard from Nate Bork, who was fired, he says, because he complained about new curriculum at the school. We'll be right back with one of the young people suing the federal government over climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are times 16-year-old Scott Martinez admits he wishes he could just hang out. But then it's time to give a speech to the United Nations or join protesters at Standing Rock or make an appearance on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Our generation is being bombarded with media that's showing us that it's over. You know, climate change is the greatest issue of our time. We have politicians that aren't supporting, you know, our survival. And there's so many problems all over the world. Everywhere we look, there's more crises. And there's no way for our voices to be used to create solutions. So young people are searching for that. A resident of Boulder, Martinez has fought for environmental issues, particularly climate change, since the age of six. He's one of 21 young plaintiffs suing the federal government to take more action to fight climate change. And Shutescott, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Your lawsuit recently cleared a legal hurdle. A federal court rejected the government's request for dismissal. Mm. The plaintiffs range in ages 9 to 20. What's the fundamental legal argument? The legal argument is um, based off of the U.S. Constitution and our constitutional right, our inalienable right to life, liberty, and property, um, and saying that climate change is in direct violation of that and our government's lack of action on climate change is in direct violation of our constitutional right. That is really to your fundamental existence, you'd say. Mm, Exactly. Even if you win, it's likely the government would appeal which would go to the Supreme Court, which will likely be more conservative under a Donald Trump administration. Mm. Are you ready to take on the president-elect in this? I think it's definitely more daunting having Donald Trump as um, one of the people that would be a defendant, I would say, in this lawsuit. But I still believe that we have the same amount of potential for, for having this pass through. Why do you believe that? I believe that What we have seen in this movement is that there's been a lot of inaction from our politicians and a lot of corruption from our politicians for a very long time. And I believe that um, we have a very strong case. We have a very strong case with very strong evidence. And a part of that evidence is the stories from every young individual that is filing this lawsuit. We all have a story of how we have already been impacted by climate change. Give me an example for yourself. So myself... A lot of the story that I bring is, first of all, the wildfires that we've seen all across Colorado um, the last several summers that have, um, you know, my friends have lost homes and, you know, driving up into the mountains, you just see um, a large amount of destruction from the wildfires there, as well as the floods that we've seen um, across Boulder. Um, So definitely there are local impacts on climate change. But for me, I think it's also global because of how much I travel. So every community that I visit has a different story to tell. So I feel as though part of my participation in this lawsuit is also representing the voices of all of those that I've met from all over the world, from Kiribati to the islands in the Pacific Ocean that have already been lost. And um, yeah. Uh, Kiribati. So uh, Kiribati, these are the islands just, I think, on the other side of the dateline mm-hmm. and that are being inundated, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was actually on a, on a Skype call with one of, with the president of Kiribati and he said that um, he said that for my people, and this was around the, the, the Paris Accords in, in 2015, um, and he said that for my people, climate change is um, an issue that is not where we've, we've lost our in essence. He said that um, our, our communities have been um, displaced to the point of, you know, it's over for us, but we're not going to stop fighting. And it was, yeah. 
A bit of an odd question, um, but I've always wanted to ask this of a young person. Do you begrudge your parents for having you and bringing you into a world with climate Mm. change? You know, I think that there's no better time to be alive than now because we are amongst one of the greatest man-made crises of all time. Um, and I think a part of that comes with a responsibility um, to be the generation that is really going to help determine the direction of where this goes and where our children and our grandchildren um, are going to have. So I've never had a grudge against my parents for, for bringing me into the world. I just feel like it's given me an amazing opportunity to try to help inspire a generation to be a part of something better and leave something better than the world the parents, our parents left us. Do you feel some frustration with the older generation? It's definitely frustrating sometimes because we look at every problem in the world today, you know, is going to be left to our generation, whether it's, you know, poverty or, um, you know, international relations between countries. It's like all these crises are going to be left to our generation and those to follow. So it's it's definitely can be frustrating at times. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is 16-year-old Shutezcat Martinez of Boulder, who has spoken on the subject of climate change before the United Nations and is party to a suit uh, from other young people uh, against the federal government on climate change in action. You also filed a lawsuit against the state government regarding fracking. That Mm -hmm. one was dismissed. You say changing policy regarding climate change is especially hard in Colorado. Why do you say that? Um, Our politicians here are very bought off by the industry. And if you even look at our um, Governor Hickenlooper, you know, we call him Governor Frackenlooper because of his support of the fossil fuel industry here um, without actually much regard to the communities, the people, the environment that is being impacted by this extraction process. So for us to change laws here has been incredibly challenging. I think that the governor would tell you that he cares about communities and that he's living with the reality of the state constitution, which says there is land to own and there's mineral rights to own underneath it and both have to be honored. What would you say? I would say that um, when those land rights and those mineral rights are being exploited to the extent of harming communities and um, putting people's health at risk directly, I feel like that's, um, I feel like a, a, a place of priorities that needs to be sorted, you know, and, and where, where the priorities land has often been in the, in the, in the favor of private interests of corporations rather than in the favor of people. We see that everywhere. We see that at Standing Rock in North Dakota. It's the same thing, you know, where our police are not fighting to protect people. They're protecting a pipeline. You appeared on a Swedish show called Skavlan, and you had something to say about the emergence of technology and our reliance on it. We can develop as a world with technology, with business, with um, with corporate profit, as well as live in balance with the world and leave future generations not only a very wealthy planet, but a very healthy, sustainable Earth that can sustain itself and can survive. You sound like you're 40. (laughs) Anyway, we'll talk about that in a bit. But what's the balance between wealth and health? I thought that was an interesting point. Right. Um, Traveling to Sweden, I think, was a really good um, opportunity for me to see um, policy and government working in a way that is actually growing economically um, very quickly, as well as developing sustainable energy practices. Um, The entire country of Sweden is run 50% on renewable energy. And I met with parliamentarians as well as um, the deputy prime minister, and they said that they're going to be 100% carbon neutral by 2045, 100% renewable energy by 2040, and their economy is still growing. I feel like that is a great example of how we can begin to develop and understand that in the world today, 
fossil fuels are no longer relevant. That is not the energy source that we need to be looking for, regardless of who owns the mineral rights, regardless of how much fossil fuels are still in the ground. That isn't going to be sustainable long term. It's not a sustainable resource. And we can continue to grow economically by up picking up our ability to um, use all the different resources around us, such as the air, the wind, you know, our water. Like renewable energy is such a such a real um, resource that is available to us that we need to begin to pursue. And what would you tell the coal miner who's hurting right now? I feel it's it's a very challenging thing because it's not like we can just you know flip a switch and then change the infrastructure from fossil fuels to renewable energy. It definitely has to be a very comprehensive whole systems change that has to happen very quickly. Where we aren't losing jobs, we are actually creating more jobs, creating more profit, more benefits in this country for all of the workers that are working in coal mines in these terrible conditions to be able to go and transfer um, and actually create more jobs by adopting renewable energy practices, whether it's um, you know putting up solar panels or, or wind turbines. Like they they definitely I understand that these people need jobs and these people also matter just as much as the people on the front lines being affected by the fracking those these people all matter and we need to find a place where we can build a country where both of these people can can thrive and that isn't a country with fossil fuels how did you get into this realm Mm. of speaking out about the environment about climate change What, what do you think it was the seed for it um, I think part of it was was my dad is is indigenous from from Mexico City the Mexica people that's that's my lineage and my entire life I grew up in the ceremonies learning our, our about our, our culture our dances our songs um, and I think a great awareness kind of instilled upon me where everything that I do is kind of in honor of my ancestors and of the generations to follow where we have a responsibility to protect our culture our language our land uh, for those to follow as well as an honor for those that have come before us and I think that just gave me a greater sense of awareness about the planet so when I began to learn about issues like climate change, our environmental crisis, I felt a sense of responsibility and connection to the earth that, you know, gave me a voice. Do people underestimate you? Um, at certain times, there definitely is a level of underestimation because I'm 16, because I'm younger. And When, um, when have you felt that? I think when I stood up on, onto the podium at the United Nations, um, there, there was definitely a little bit of that where the entire audience for every speaker was incredibly unengaged. But then I began with a prayer in my native language. They have these little um, earpieces that translate between yeah. languages and my traditional language is not translatable in a lot of ways. You know, So everybody would, like woke up and was like, oh, what is this kid saying? And they all put on their earpieces, but they weren't getting anything. So it was like a, a wake-up call. And then I, everybody, I think, began to see that I had something to say and my voice was just as important as any politician or as any United Nations delegate. You've given, what, three speeches at the UN now? Three or four. Three. Okay, you've lost track. Wow. <laughs> when you are 16 and have lost track of how many speeches you've given. Can I hear a little bit of that prayer? Yeah. So, I would just like to hear right, that. Right, right, right. So it was it was um, a very simple prayer that was giving thanks for, for the, the things in this world that have given us life. So it goes, Senkat la sokamati tonan sintlalikwatlikwe. Senkat la sokamati tatatonatiu. Senkat la sokamati tlet kiawitlatl. It's a little piece of it. Can you translate a bit of it? It's um, giving thanks for the earth below our feet, giving thanks for um, the rain and the water that gives us life for the fire, for the elements in the four directions. What is the next step in this lawsuit against the federal government? So we have just received the word um, the other day that um, things are going to continue to move forward as quickly as possible. And we should be in court for the first trial, uh, for our day in trial, um, by May of 2017. In um, the Northwest, I think, Oregon or Yes, Oregon. Eugene, Oregon, I believe, is where we will be. Mm-hmm. Will you testify? or I will testify alongside a handful of some of the um, youth plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Does that make you nervous, excited? 
or how are you prepping? I think the fact that we've come this far against a multi-billion dollar conglomerate of fossil fuel companies as well as you know, the U.S. government when they tried to deny our lawsuit that we've come this far and actually um, ha- have our day in trial. I think it's incredibly exciting and it makes me very hopeful, very optimistic. Um, the government was in the position of basically arguing that kids don't have standing. Exactly. And that's, that's yeah. That's what the judge said is not true. Right, uh-huh. right. After two judges have, have reviewed it, they said that uh, that the truth is that these young people do have standing in this law, so they do have a right to, to participate in our legal system in this way. Thanks for being with us. Of course. I appreciate it. Shudas Kat Martinez of Boulder is 16 and an activist and environmentalist, one of 21 young plaintiffs suing the federal government to do more to fight climate change. We should say that last week he received the Children's Climate Prize at a ceremony in Sweden. A worldwide competition is underway to host the 2022 Gay Games. Denver's in the running for an event that could bring up to 15,000 athletes to compete in 36 sporting events. Civic leaders like the governor and Denver's mayor are pitching in, along with the LGBT community, tourism officials, others. Denver 2022 co-chair Kent Seidel's on the phone with me. Hi, Kent. Hey, how are you? I'm good. What are the Gay Games in brief? Uh, the gay games have been around. Uh, they're they're uh, held every four years uh, since 1982. Uh, they were originally founded as a, a safe space for LGBT sports athletes to to come together. It started in San Francisco. Uh, now they have grown to this size of between 12 and 15,000 participants. There are three programs, a sporting program, we've got 36 different sports, um, a cultural program, there's a choral and instrumental festival, a few other things, and uh, also a human rights program. And we've got a conference and an inclusive sport campaign going on as well. And you want to bring this to Denver? We want to bring it to Denver. We think Denver will be the perfect spot for it. For 2022, let's focus a bit on the athletics. A lot of the same sports in the Olympics or different? Pretty much the summer Olympic sports with the addition of uh, ice hockey, figure skating, uh, a few things for um, that are, are maybe considered less traditional sports, darts, bowling. Um, uh, and we've also added some uh, more Denver flavor sports as brand new ones. We've got skateboarding, uh, disc sports, ultimate frisbee and, and disc golf and uh, curling and sport climbing. Curling. Okay, so there would some of these would take place obviously indoors because this would be for a week in August of 2022, correct? Absolutely. And okay. we've got very strong partnerships with the universities and the University of Denver would uh, be hosting the ice rinks as the plan. Well, I understand that today is a milestone in the effort to bring the gay games to Denver. What happens today, Kent? Well, today uh, is the culmination of about a year and a half of work. Uh, we put in the formal bid book. Uh, so we've gone through three phases already, and we're in the in nine, uh, competing with eight other cities uh, at the moment. Uh, this bid book will result in the vote to the top three, which we'll learn about first of March. There's a little bit of a Q and A in the in between. Uh, at which point we'll get a site visit and uh, another presentation to their General Assembly next October and hopefully be voted the host. Who else is competing? Uh, the other eight cities, we've got uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Dallas, Austin, uh, Salt Lake City, Washington, D.C., Guadalajara, Mexico, and Hong Kong. 
Why are game, gay games necessary today? I, I wonder if, if some might think, gosh, there have been so many strides. Do you need a safe place like that still? Well, I mean, we're very fortunate, I think, in this area. Obviously, there's there's still a lot of work to be done, but we're a bit of an oasis, I think. Uh, so I, I think that's the first piece. Um, quite a lot of cities, uh, states, and certainly countries, uh, there there is very much still a need for a safe space. Uh, the other thing is really that this is about um, broad, inclusive sports. So uh, the gay games are open for amateur to world record-breaking performance. Uh, we include para-athletes, uh, 18 to 99 or older. Uh, there was a 99-year-old woman who competed in, in Cleveland in 2014, <laughs> um, as well as LGBT and, and straight allies. So it's it's really an opportunity to bring together all of our our diverse communities to uh, celebrate sport and culture activities. In the back of your mind, do you see this as a pathway to a bigger bid? That is, if Denver pulls off, say, the 2022 Gay Games, could it be a precursor to the Olympics? Is that something you're interested in? Uh, well, I'm I'm not going to go there, okay. <laughs> but but I can I you know I can tell you we've been working very closely with Visit Denver and with the Denver Sports Commission. Uh, actually, the dir- executive director of the Sports Commission is one of our board members, Matthew Payne. Um, and and I know that one of the reasons that they're so interested is that this is an opportunity to really show the world. Um, the inclusiveness, as well as just the the world class facilities that Denver has. So, you know, we see a lot about uh, sports from the intolerant side. You know, NBA pulling out of North Carolina, those kinds of things. And uh, this is a really op- an opportunity to provide a positive message about a great place to bring, you know, large events and sporting competitions. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's global. That is, there will be international athletes in town if if Denver lands the bid. Yeah, typically there's uh, in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 uh, countries represented. Sometimes that's uh, one or two people. Sometimes that's uh, over a thousand. So, uh, you have a lot of big names involved in this efforts. Uh, in this effort, pardon me. Your ambassadors include former Major League umpire Dave Pallone, Paralympian Allison Jones, and Denver's First Lady Mary Louise Lee. Yes. Uh, let's talk money. How much would it cost to bring these games, the Gay Games, to Denver in 2022? Uh, the budget's in the neighborhood of eight nine million dollars. Uh, you know, it it's certainly, you know, it's a it's a break even effort. So a lot of that is is uh, sponsorships. Uh, uh, a lot of it is registration funds. Um, but yeah, it's it's no small endeavor. We're anticipating about uh, three to four thousand volunteers working on it. Uh, we've already got about four hundred that have had some some role in it <laughs> over this last year and a half. So. And again, it's got the focus on athletics. There's the musical component and the human rights component. Do you want to say just a word about the human rights aspect of the gay games before we go? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you asked. Um, we are closely partnered with the You Can Play Project, which is uh, uh, founded here by uh, Brian Kitts and some colleagues. Um, Brian was uh, at one time with the Avalanche. Uh, he's with Denver Arts and Venues at this point. Um, and, you know, the, the, the concept there is if you can play, you can play. And it's, it's uh, really an anti-discrimination effort. Uh, we are looking at the opportunity, if we hit the top three, to really use our 17-18 cycle um, to, to uh, increase the support and uh, development of the advocacy and um, uh, anti-discrimination kinds of resources and materials 
the Colorado High School Ath- uh, Activities Association is a partner with You Can Play, as, as, as well as a supporter of the game's effort, uh, Denver Public Schools, uh, the universities and colleges. So we're really looking forward to getting the message out about um, inclusiveness in sport, uh, regardless of whether we actually get to the final bid stage, because anybody can win on any given day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Kent Seidel, co-chair of Denver 2022, which is promoting Denver, is the site for the International Gay Games. Three finalist cities will be announced February 28th, with final word coming next fall on the selection. Coming up, meet the new artistic director of Family, the Denver theater company that showcases actors with disabilities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A car crash in college left Reagan Linton paralyzed from the chest down, but that didn't stop her from pursuing an acting career. Linton, a Denver native, recently returned to Colorado for a new gig as artistic director in residence with Family Theater Company. Family showcases actors with disabilities. Linton has appeared in many of its past productions. She's believed to be the only person in a wheelchair to serve as artistic leader of a major U.S. theater group. Linton joins my colleague, Nathan Heffel. Reagan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I understand you began acting in middle school, but you were also really into athletics at that time. Yes. But- in fact, more so into athletics than I was into theater. I was I played soccer and softball yeah. and skied growing up in Colorado. Um, and theater was always kind of like a side thing that I I, I did on, you know in my bathroom um, <laughs> in the morning, like having interviews with uh, in the mirror. Late, yeah, late night talk show hosts in the mirror. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I did it a, a little bit. And then when I got into high school is when I kind of plunged into it more thoroughly. Why? Why did you take that route as opposed to athletics? Well, I loved both. But actually, to be honest, it came to a point where the seasons conflicted. The soccer season conflicted with the musical theater season. And um, I'd been playing my soccer my whole life. And I was like, OK, I'm going to give something else a go. So I want to get on stage and belt out a song. That sounds fun. And it took. And it it took. did. It did somehow. Yeah, I didn't fall off the stage, <laughs> <laughs> at least that time. Um, <laughs> no, it. Uh, I think it was something that I always had a passion for. But, you know, growing up, I... I had a lot of uh, different influences that made me think like, oh, I I shouldn't take that route because it's not legitimate, quote unquote, in some way. Um, You know, I should be a doctor. I should be a a lawyer. I should be, you know, this or that. And um, eventually I just couldn't deny it after after a certain amount of time. (laughs) Yeah, how much you loved it. Yeah, yeah. You have a spinal cord injury uh, from a car crash when you were an undergraduate at the University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. What were those early days like for you after the accident? Ooh, rough. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's interesting. I actually um, – I kind of roller coastered between really high points where I was I would lie in my bed and I would think, you know, this isn't so bad. Like I can do this. What what's not walking, you know, using a wheelchair, no big deal. And then there were other times where I'd be lying there and I I remember telling my mom at some point I should have just died because it would have been easier because I was going to be, you know, a burden to myself and my family and uh and I didn't know how it was I was going to make it work. And um so there were a lot of emotions, and I think I, to a large extent, just kind of went back into a shell and, um, you know, put up an armor and, and didn't didn't want to engage with it. Um, 
So it was rough. It was a hard time. So how did acting then help with that? Or did it help with recovery? It, Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like acting kind of came along as that uh, savior in a sense where, I mean, it, not immediately. I was terrified of it because I, again, I think there of was... Of acting? This, of acting, yeah. And of getting back on stage again because I had a certain image from growing up of what that would look like. You know, I didn't see actors using wheelchairs on stage. And so to some extent, it was like, how do I do that? Well, now with two thirds of my body paralyzed, um, how do I do a tap dance? How do I uh, represent a character fully? And so it took a while for me to discover my instrument, my physical instrument in a new way and realize, oh, this is totally possible. It's just going to look different from what I what it used to. But I understand that while you were in Los Angeles, uh, uh, it was hard for directors to see past your wheelchair. Absolutely. It, you know, um, the entertainment industry is a is a tough industry for anybody. And one of the reasons is that, you know, often you're looking at something very specific. When casting directors get a casting breakdown, um, you know, it has age, it has race, it has uh, gender, it has, you know, specific descriptions of what this person should look like. Mm. And so if you don't have somebody that's written a disability or a wheelchair into that, then often casting directors are moving at such a quick pace that they don't even have the time to think outside of the box and think, oh, well, a wheelchair, a person in a wheelchair could play this role. Um, you know, they're just looking at getting it done. So, um, so it's it's hard, and there and there are not a lot of roles written for people with disabilities. And often, when they are, then they're played by people who don't have disabilities. So, uh, it was it was definitely a challenge in that environment. As we mentioned, you've performed a number of family shows, uh, and you won a Best of Denver award from Westward. I did for your performance Ooh. of Eldanza in Family's <laughs> production of Manila Mancha. Yes. How and when were you first exposed to Family? I was well. The funny thing is, I was I, I when I was a kid, I would look in like the Denver Post mm. at the auditions. They used to list auditions, and I would see family, but it said that you had to have a disability to audition. I was like, oh darn, I can't do that, you know, because I didn't I didn't have a disability at that point. Um, so I kind of was aware of a family, and then uh, after my injury, I came back and was fortunate enough to go to Craig Hospital in Englewood to do my rehab. And while I was there, I had some people, family friends, that said, oh, you know, you're we know you're a performer. You should look at this group. Mm. And um, so I started volunteering initially because, I, again, I was too I, – I wasn't at the point where I was ready to audition yet. And um, finally it, it got to a point where I was like, I just can't – I can't not do this and see what happens with it. Was it because you were afraid or you just didn't feel – I think it was fear. Again, it was just that thing of like – I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what this is going to be. And there were also a lot of messages out there that I bought into about disability and about what that was going to mean for my life, about what a wheelchair would mean for my life. And, you know, many of them are not positive, uh, but they're also inaccurate. <laughs> so it just took me a while to kind of get past that and and um, take the plunge and then realize, oh, I can make my wheelchair or my body or myself into anything that I want it to be. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Reagan Linton. She's the new artistic director in residence with Englewood-based Family Theater Company. Every one of Family's shows has a cast comprised entirely of performers with disabilities. You plan to continue the sensory-friendly performances Family's former artistic director, Bryce Alexander, put in place. Uh, yeah. These are performances adapted for patrons with sensory uh, processing disabilities like autism or uh, Down syndrome. So there are no loud or abrupt noises or, or lights. The audience light remains at a low level. People are able to get up and get around. 
Uh, I understand you have plans to expand accessibility for family audiences even further. What does that mean? Yeah, we so yes, we are doing the sensory friendly programming. Um, in fact, uh, we're about to open our holiday show, Tiny Tim's Christmas Carol, and we will have a sensory friendly performance for that on the 15th of December. And we're also going to have a sensory friendly Santa for uh, after the, the Sunday shows and for the sensory friendly performance where um, people that have different sensory needs can come in and see Santa without the pressures that they often encounter um, with that experience. But, you know, we uh, because we are in the, the business of disability to some extent, um, we realize some of the challenges that exist in going to see traditional theater if you have different different needs or different accommodations that need to be met, whether it's um, American Sign Language interpretation or captioning or audio description or a wheelchair a seat that will accommodate your wheelchair. Um, so our ultimate goal with family is to make every performance as accessible to any patron that comes in the door as possible. Um, so I'd say we're you know, we're about 60 percent there. But, you know, eventually we'd like to have on demand um, ASL description where you can get it for any performance as opposed to like, oh, you have these few performances that you can come to 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 get, um, you know, sign language. And we're already there with audio description. We have on demand audio description where if you let us know 72 hours in advance, we can do it for any performance. Hmm. Now, Alexander has already programmed the 2016-2017 season, so that's, yes. that remains. That remains, yes. But moving forward, you know, what kinds of productions would you like to bring uh, to, to this Ooh, to that is the big question, Ooh. isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, I think one of the... Th- one of the lovely things about family is that we have actors that cannot help but be authentic and honest in what they do. Um, obviously, they're still actors. They're playing other, you know, they're they're channeling other characters. Um, but it's a different experience when you see somebody get on stage and use something in a vulnerable and authentic way. Um, so I, I hope we can just continue that tradition of, you know, doing the big main stage shows and musicals and plays that we've always done, but bringing a level of authenticity to it. And I think there are also there's some areas of subject matter that I think family hasn't tackled um, in terms of like sexuality and relationships mm. and what it is to be a person with a disability and have the same desires and wants and needs as any other person. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're going to venture into that into that realm, as well as some theatrical genres that we've never tried, such as Shakespeare or, you know, hopefully in the future, something like Chekhov or, you know, some of the uh, some of the things that are character characteristic to theater work um, and challenging theater work that we as a company just haven't had the opportunity to do yet. Now, are, are there works that do show uh, people with disabilities falling in love or is that something that you would have to write or bring to the stage yourself? I think there are some out there already. You know, my my opinion is also we can do a traditional play about love. It doesn't have to be written with disability in it. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can do Romeo and Juliet. We can do, um, you know, whatever your favorite play is that is about love. And just have it cast with people with disabilities. So, uh, so we'll be looking at that too. And but we do also, you know, one of the things that many of our actors are passionate about is doing original work and writing pieces that come from a perspective or through a lens of disability. Mm-hmm. And we'll be continuing that as well. Briefly, you're the artistic director in residence, uh, meaning right. you were hired for just one season. Uh, though this could become long term, you have some ambitious goals, as we've heard. Uh, is your plan realistic in this temporary role? 
real brief. Sure. <laughs> of course. I mean, I, I think I'll be sticking around for a while in some capacity. And uh, so, yeah, we'll do whatever we can with the time available. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. Reagan Litton is the new artistic director in residence of Englewood-based Family Theatre Company, which features actors with disabilities. She joined my colleague Nathan Heffel. Family's next show, Tiny Tim's Christmas Carol, opens this week in Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks so much for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio.